So I thought it was really important to do some background research on Troy and everything like that and decided to add the the present town mm. that once was Troy on my phone to see the weather. Okay. It's 58 degrees, mostly cloudy. Is that Fahrenheit? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Great question. Uh, it's currently 11 p.m. Uh-huh. to our 4 p.m. And uh, it's going to be a low of 56, high of 70. Perfect rating weather. Perfect weather Okay. in Perf- Troy. <laughs> yeah, perfect <laughs> weather for the fall of Troy. Great. Let's go. It's not even going to rain until the weekend. we got plenty of time. Get that horse in there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Welcome to the Book Lovers Podcast from Spartanburg County Public Libraries. We're obsessed with books and pop culture, and we know you are too. I'm Joseph Henderson, the media specialist. And I'm Ria Gajeski, the children's assistant. And I'm Jess Herzog, the director of adult services. We're quite excited to have Ria on this episode to discuss mythological retellings with us, since she's read quite a few. I like myths. (laughs) Today we're focusing on The Silence of the Girls, Pat Barker's retelling of the battles of Achilles from the perspective of Briseis, Achilles' prize of war. Befitting the novel's graphic and terse but emotionally rich narrative, we're discussing Barker's ability to convey violence and slavery while still maintaining the humanity of her characters. Let's get started. Jess, why do we retell stories? What's with the mythology retellings? Well, I think there are a few different reasons. I mean, they've been super popular over, I would say, the last decade or so. Mm -hmm. I think what it really comes down to is that we're taking a story that so many of us know. We all learn about mythology in school, especially Western mythology, Um, the Trojan War, gods and goddesses all of that kind of stuff achilles of course i don't know if it's still the case but i am a product of south carolina schools and they dedicated Same. two years <laughs> to ancient cultures so social studies would start off with greek mythology in sixth grade and then we got it again in ninth grade so i caught the mythology bug twice very early in life <laughs> which led to reading a lot of retellings later on because I was like, these are fun characters. Let's see them play out different ways. Yeah. And I I was not a product of South Carolina schools, but I majored in Latin. Mm. So I kind of got it. (laughs) I got a lot of the mythology. I remember my experience was different in a certain sense because I spent a lot of time studying Egyptian mythology Mm -hmm. in school in particular it was like Egyptian and then Aztec mm-hmm. mythology in particular. And um, and I think that was just a product of like the program that I had to be at school at for a little bit earlier than like the normal call time. I don't know. 
that was what we were reading about. And it was interesting to me, especially the Egyptian stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's so. something so interesting about mythology in general because it's so different than re- religion as we know it today. Mm-hmm. Sure. Right? I mean, you've got this um, polytheistic society. You've got gods and goddesses engaging face-to-face with humans, which we don't really see. We've got demigods, half-gods, all this kind of stuff. So there's this real very fantastical mm-hmm. element There's like a whole cast of characters and different things that you can play with exactly. and move around yeah and it's and it's like these are the people who control yeah and it's almost universe. it's very <laughs> removed from like how people center their worldview today so Absolutely. it's like it's almost like fair game to be like yeah this god did this and it was crazy and it doesn't have to necessarily like make sense theologically because it's just like yeah. this is so far removed it is ancient with a capital a right. it's just ha- you know move them around on the, ca- on the board play a little bit i don't know yeah there's i mean there is much more of like a in a in a weird way like a almost flirtatious aspect to the Mm -hmm. gods and their behavior that we certainly don't see with like the monotheistic religions of today and i think that makes it really fun to read Mm -hmm. um and especially some of these stories are so ridiculously out there. And some of these people are so ridiculously stupid. <laughs> Aeneas, I'm looking at you. Aeneas is very dumb. But I think there's something fun about reading that. And then to take those stories and say, well, what if we inverted them and had the same thing go down, but from a different perspective? What does that look like? And then we start to get into the nitty gritty of like, oh, well, who is this happening to? Because there are very few, very, very few mythology stories that I can think of where the victim is the one who tells the story. Mm. It's always like, you know, history is told by the victor, that kind of stuff. But even in mythology, we really see um, what happens when a god gets mad, like what happens when Hera gets mad. That she's not chosen as the prettiest goddess. Uh, yeah. An over a nine-year uh, war. <laughs> uh, Trojan war kind of happens. Right. You know, the, these kind of really outlandish things happen. Um, but we don't see what the real human impact of them is. And by looking at these mythological retellings today, we're taking a story that we all know and love very often. And then kind of throwing it in the funhouse mirror and seeing what comes out of it mm-hmm. and trying to understand a bit better and seeing these characters as really human, you know, having read the Iliad and the Odyssey and the Aeneid and the Metamorphoses and all of these so many times, um, it's kind of easy to forget that these people are human because they're just really, uh, they're actors essentially. Mm-hmm. And so what we're getting today with all of these retellings silence of the girls included is that these are real people yeah that were actually it's also kind of a different type of art i feel like they right. do different things where it's the the epic poem and the meter and all of those things it is art and art is human at its core in a different way like no matter what the medium is so you get the medium of the epic poem but then also in like the medium of the novel and the heart of both shines perfectly in their medium but like this just is a different it's a different type of art yeah. and both are fair and valid um, and beautiful in their own way. Yeah. And we think about the epic poem and the tradition of the epic poem. You're supposed to listen to it, right? It's supposed to probably, especially with the Iliad and uh, the Odyssey be sung to you mm-hmm. and right. told over 
three dozen nights basically sure. <laughs> while you're on a trip party, from, party. yeah from <laughs> right. from Ithaca to Sparta you know you're going on your way and you're hearing the story of your forebears or whatever whereas the novel the goal of the novel is to be read mm-hmm. it is not meant to be told to you I mean we have audiobooks that's a little sure. bit different though right. like the novel the idea of it is to have the words on paper and to be visually absorbed by the eye and the brain and in fact when you're you know, when you're dealing with something like an epic poem, uh, like the, you know, the Homeric epics, you are, you're, you're dealing with pieces of, pieces of writing that were brought into form a whole that would actually be recited piecemeal a lot of times. Yeah. Um, which is why we have um, lots of sections that might have, you know, certain forms of repetition or they would have repetition of particular phrases and particular words that kind of form this like almost like a substrate of what the epic poem would be, you know, from the from the catalog of ships to phrases like particular key phrases like the best of the Achaeans, say, for instance. Yeah, of course. Um, which is used, or swift-footed Achilles, mm-hmm. right? Um, Got those fast feet. Yeah, yeah. Um, where where you have those those kind of leading phrases that uh, that that structure certain rhythms within the poem. Right. So yeah, I think the I think um, you know your point about the sort of the forms of the stories is uh i mean that's another that's another piece that certainly certainly adds to the appeal of um contemporary novelized retellings is just simply to say you know these are these are forms that are going to appeal more to contemporary readers Mm -hmm. because that's that's how stories are told or that is that is one of the more popular ways in which we're we do we are used to receiving mm-hmm. stories yeah right joseph do you feel like there's a difference between like a retelling and a new translation of a story i mean i do i think that i, th- I think again it comes down to really it does come down to the question of um of the form of the thing then in which you're receiving it. And by that, it's just like, is it a novel? Is it a novel? Is it a series of short stories or something like that? Prose fiction versus, versus poetry. Um, because, uh, you know, I think, but I, I think that at least for me, there's a lot that's really possible with, um, with new translations that, um, opens up these um classic texts in really interesting ways uh and you know trend contemporary translators uh like say emily wilson in particular uh or, or daniel mendelson um who who have both done a lot of interesting work with homer over the last several years wilson with her you know much lauded translation of of the odyssey and now her forthcoming translation of the Iliad uh which will be out in the fall um you know she's she's reflected a lot on this and on how um in some ways the 
older translations that she's kind of working in dialogue with and against, they in, they insert a lot of things and and reinvent aspects of these stories in particular ways where as she's approaching the text, she's just simply not seeing those same those same sorts of frameworks. And so there's always this need for um, for a fresh sensibility to you know to work on the to work on the piece. And again, as a person who who likes poetry and you know is fine with, with reading, you know, epic forms and that sort of thing. I, I always love a new translation like of Christmas. something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it is a new translation. You know, and and Please I th- hold. and <laughs> and I think at least for me, there's there's an appeal to that that is slightly different than the appeal of um, the appeal of the novel. And I think part of it is in capturing something about the musicality. Mm of the poetry um and and you know pat barker is a is a marvelous writer and she's a she's a very sort of like she has a very sort of muscular prose style it's it's clipped it's particular but it's also very modern mm-hmm. and um and that's just something that you're not necessarily going to get in in the poem although depending on the right reader you know you can really you can really uh, reanimate those um those new translations as well right there are a couple of times where barker kind of limps her way towards some sort of meter there were a couple passages when she's calling upon the gods briseis she's calling upon the gods to like curse the camp right Right. and i'm like oh "Oh." it was it was so much a step away from her prose writing that i was like it's like ooh, this is big stuff we are speaking in meter or like we are there was there was emotion with it and i feel like that was I don't know if it was like in like bringing in the like gods of epic poems past, but I was just like, this yeah. is, this is he- weighty and heavy and beautiful. Yeah. Um, so I think it's kind of interesting when it's like, Oh, those are kind of coexisting and the, the weight that both of them carry the novel prose and some sort of poetry with it. Right. Yeah. And I mean, and I think, um, yeah, I think those, I think I know the moments that you're, you're talking about um, where, you know, where she's sort of she's trying to bring down the mm-hmm. the plague god of mice yeah right um yeah it does it does sort of break into things and it does it does have an aspect of that like epic mm-hmm. invocation right um of the muse or apollo or yeah. what have you right so ria you bring up the point about the calling down the rats mm-hmm. to infect the to infect the camp yeah and thanks for bringing that up yeah calling down the plague it's a big, and all it's a of fun that time it's not yeah for anybody now not to not to go too too deep down the rat hole oh I guess. <laughs> god dude what we can go down the rat hole i don't know yeah yeah rat's nest of mm-hmm. complications here mm-hmm. um but i think we have to say something about not just the, you know, Pat Barker's prose style in the novel, but really the um, the sort of grisly mm-hmm. and absolutely unglamorous, yeah, um, port- brutal portrayal of of war, yeah. in this novel. I at this point in the book when um, 
Briseis is calling upon Apollo to curse the camp with plague. Um, she's been in the camp for, we're not sure how long, months, assumedly, yeah. maybe a year. We don't really know. Time is an illusion in war and especially in this camp blurry, for the girls. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But she's reached a point where she's like, I've had enough. I have no agency. This is horrible. There's no end in sight. I've lost my station. I was once a queen. I've lost my brothers. They were murdered by Achilles, who I now serve. All of these things. And um, she calls upon Apollo to curse the camp with plague. And does he deliver? Um, (laughs) There's very long uh, passages of all of the horrible boils and things that are brought upon. But it's one of those things that with Pat Barker's writing style, it is very much... um, blunt to a certain extent both mm-hmm. like the the sickness but also how she handles most things with this novel which we could arguably call a war novel of just how bodies are dismembered in battle how right. um sickness takes old like the elderly and the young and how women are treated when they become property of these warriors um sure so I mean, it's, there's, there's it's a very vision. harsh. <laughs> yeah, there's yeah. a vision that I remember. Rats just piling up in the streets, dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, which yeah. is very similar to all the bodies that are left on the battlefield that right. pile up dead. Right. Um, that never receive proper bur- burial. Mm-hmm. Sure. Much like the rats do. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a brutal novel. Yeah. But I think that's essential because... Reading the Iliad, re- reading the Odyssey, any sort of Homeric tradition, really kind of glamorizes things mm-hmm. a bit. The amount of glory that you get for being involved in this is really like the peak of the storytelling. Um, being remembered for all eternity, like Achilles, and mm-hmm. um, being this king, like Agamemnon, and da da da, and being so great at war, and you know, Hector stinks and whatever. Personally, I was on the side of the Trojans, but that's beside the point. Um, <laughs> but you don't you don't get the true story of war from the epic poems mm-hmm. that we read. There's the honorifics that are put in front of their names, like clever right. Odysseus yes. and Fleet-footed all of these things. Yeah, but yeah, you don't you don't really get mm-hmm. how dark and how grim and brutal war truly is and of course that wasn't something that was like openly spoken about until what like world war ii world world war one i guess perhaps Mm -hmm. um all quiet on the western front is probably one of the earliest examples shell shock yes um and then pat barker very smartly writes that into the silence of the girls and gives ajax ptsd Mm which is really incredible to see. And that comes about much later in the novel, but to see, I mean, Ajax is considered in mythological stories to be this huge, powerful, one of the best warriors. Yeah. One of the best warriors of all time, um, impossible to defeat, you know, and we never hear about what the opposite side Mm -hmm. of that could be or what lies crying out in the night from right is he terrified yeah the things that he can't forget or doesn't want to remember but still has to live with every day um which i think i think that's the big thing that makes us really a true war novel is that pat barker is taking 
these people who are involved in this story, making them human and making them live with the consequences of their actions. Mm-hmm. All of the men. Yeah. Um, Achilles has to live with the decisions that he's made. He doesn't just get to like roam around and be great or whatever. So does Patroclus, mm-hmm. as does Agamemnon. They all have to live with the choices that they've made, um, whether good or bad. And the reader walks through them kind of explicitly with them in this novel. Not every retelling that I've encountered is quite as like blow for blow. But Pat Barker is. <laughs> um, she's very much walking you through both like the battle scenes that we see when we do transition from Briseis's point of view to kind of like kind of more of a third person narrator with Patroclus and Achilles halfway through the novel we kind of see the walkthroughs of the violence of that but with the women in the camps we also see like I don't know if home front is the right word for this but like what's going on at the camps what's going on with the women and the brutality of that as well with their being stripped of their bodily autonomy and so having to do labor all day and mm-hmm. in some cases all night Absolutely. for these men that are now their owners. Well, um, you know, when you think about who who actually sees the true brutality of war um, and men on the battlefield and now women as well and those who are non-binary um, now here in the present day all see it when mm-hmm. they're in on the war front. But during this time period in ancient history, it's really the women who see the brutality because the men either they die on the battlefield, they die in the hospital camp or they're heroes. You have one of three choices there. You and don't depending get on to who's telling the story. You dying on the battlefield. You're also a hero. So yeah. it's kind sure. of. But or like your story isn't even told yeah. at all, one way or the other. Like you're gone or you're a hero. Yeah. There is no in between there. There is no room for the ambiguity of like, yeah, we did this thing and we won. But oh, my God, I can never sleep again. I can't close my eyes. What I see behind my eyelids is too much to bear, but too much to talk about as well. And so really the the women who are caring for the men who come back injured burying the men who die they're really the ones who see the true brutality they can see the battlefield they are watching this happen Mm -hmm. they are seeing the ground get stained with blood sure um they are the ones who have to clean the clothing and wash the blood off of everything and they're the ones who hold those stories and are able to talk about them more because it is socially acceptable for them to talk about these things Mm -hmm. So it's really, you. I feel like you get a better idea almost of the brutality of the war from the bystander and the caretaker than you do of the person who's actually gone through it in this case. Mm-hmm. Well, and this is taking me back to rethink the idea of retellings a little bit because I think in, in a way that almost gives somewhat short shrift to what someone like Barker is actually achieving with the novel uh, The Silence of the Girls in relation to the Iliad because when we look at the Iliad and we think about what the what that poem is doing you know in some ways it is um, and this is not an original insight to me it's credit to Emily Wilson and some of her discussions of the book um, but uh, 
we can think about that poem as uh, as a poem about bodies in a lot of different ways, right? Yeah. This is the this is the world, or this is the this is the world that sort of makes this Trojan War happen, where women's bodies are subject to the spoils of war, and they are um, turned into objects, turned into property, and mm-hmm. so on. But much the same can be said of the men as well, and especially the men that die on the battlefield. And when Absolutely. it comes to the question of where they're going to be buried mm-hmm. and what happens to their armor and their weapons, yep. right? And and I think that brutality, that that reduction to just the purely bodily, I think that's that's absolutely something that Barker is tuned into and is able to amplify for contemporary readers mm-hmm. in a way that it might be it might be harder for us to access if we're simply going back um, to the poem and and so. And so that's a that's another facet of of a way of thinking about this as really truly as a war novel is to say what happens what happens to this place of absolute vulnerability, right? And and how that's rendered for a reader. Well, I think it's it's too like how many times are you going to go back and read the Iliad? Sure, really. Let's be honest. The, the average person, uh, n- not more than once, maybe for school. Yeah. Right. The non-average person, some of which are sitting around this discussion group um, a couple times. But yes. yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but still, the yeah. point is, how many times are you going to go back once. and read it? Sure. Maybe. I think about, for example, an earlier episode that we did that where we covered Ill Will. That's mm-hmm. a book that I go back and I read regularly, or reread regularly. And each time I tell myself, think about the different characters. Mm-hmm. Think about it from the perspective of the women in the book. Think about it uh, from the perspective of the children in the book, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And that forces me to look at the story from different angles. But how often are you going to do that with the Iliad? (laughs) Again, as someone who majored in Latin, I've forced myself through the Aeneid maybe half a dozen times, but I certainly didn't love it. Mm -hmm. However, reading something like Lavinia by Ursula K. Le Guin would give me an entirely new world to consider because Lavinia barely shows up at like the end of book 10. She pops in and out and she's like, Hey Aeneas, I'll marry you. Sure. Whatever. We'll make a Rome. I don't know. (laughs) Um, But to, to think about her as a, you know, bone and flesh human being with mm-hmm. her own life, her own story, everything like that completely expands my understanding of the Aeneid and the world of it in my head. So there are places where these retellings can really help build upon the tradition that we've been given with these epic poems. So in relation to this, um, this idea of sort of, reformulating, rethinking the epic tradition and kind of engaging with the epic tradition. I mean, I think there's, I think there's actually a very interesting and surprising way in which we can see Pat Barker making some connections to, um, to this Homeric tradition in particular. And so I have a little bit of a lead in here. Um, the idea is that in, uh, in, in the original uh, ancient Greek text, one of the one of the really important words that comes up again and again um, 
and is often translated as fame, but sometimes is translated as listening and stories, is kleos. Mm. So there's always this emphasis on the hearer and the listener. And Rhea, you had a really interesting insight that you were talking about off mic. Uh, my apologies. But now you'll be talking but about it But now you're going to be mic. talking about it on mic. We're going to capture this for right. posterity. Uh, because you you were noticing, and you were talking about noticing moments in mm-hmm. the novel where it seems like Briseis is turning the narrative out towards a listener, towards yeah. an implied or assumed audience. Yeah, and there's way. times where it goes back and forth and I, as a reader, can't tell if she's talking to herself and trying to convince herself that what she's doing is justifiable in war, um, her actions. She's like, oh, I'm trying to survive. Can I balance my actions with my moral code but then sometimes it's far more direct and I almost convinced she's outward facing with Mm -hmm. how she's speaking and it kind of especially strikes um spoilers readers is the last page of the book but um (laughs) (laughs) it's she's very much like this is my story these are our girls this is what we are saying you might not like it because it is a story of hardship and bodily harm and all of these things it's not a love story Mm. but it's our story Mm. Um, it's very abrasive, but kind of the perfect way to end it, in my sure. opinion. It's yeah. like, ooh, almost like a mic drop. Like, here we go. Right. <gasps> That's <Right>. it. <laughs> and so, and and of course, thinking about the title of the novel and thinking about the way that, you know, Briseis encounters the phrase, silence becomes a woman and mm-hmm. all this stuff. And and that turn at the very end that you mentioned um, to to say, you know, you have to contend with now with what is being said, right? It's like now we're getting yet another invocation of that Kleos Mm -hmm. idea, that sense of hearing. But here it's about hearing the unheard, Mm -hmm. right? And what has never been, what has never been captured and what has never been put to to page before or what has been shuttered off, Mm -hmm. right, to the margins in some way. So, so much of our conversation about this novel has been thinking about it as a war novel, but I also want to suggest that it's, it's really helpful for us to consider it as, as an anti-war novel as well, simply because of everything that it depicts and simply because of the way that it, you know, demythologizes all of what is part of this massive mythological story mm-hmm. of of war and and conquest, um, so uh, I want to add in another uh, yet another citation to this that I think is really clarifying about the Iliad in particular. This is um, this is from uh, an essay um, by the French writer Simone Veil. Uh, uh, the essay is called "The Iliad or the Poem of Force" or "The Iliad: A Poem of Force." I think. We'll get it right on the website. But the point is that um, what Vey says is that uh, the real central figure in the Iliad is force itself. And that is what is being championed in, in the poem. And under sort of under the framework and under the laws of force, all persons are rendered into objects mm-hmm. and rendered into into things and and i think that is absolutely a process that we see 
taking place in Barker's novel, but we also see her contending with this idea mm-hmm. um, in 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 the novel as well. And just to throw in another, um, I guess a sort of a plug for for Barker's work outside of this novel, and then it's its follow-up, which was called The Women of Troy. Um, she has a trilogy of novels set in the First World War that explore a similar set of themes. Um, they're called the Regeneration Trilogy. I don't remember the titles of all the novels right now, but they focus partially on the stories of uh, the English poets Wilfred Owen and Siegfried Sassoon, their experiences in the war, in the trenches, but also their experiences afterwards reckoning with the particular traumas that they um that they had to deal with on the battlefield and and so on so um so this is a you know this is another another way of thinking about barker's work and thinking about how she's rendering these stories of war and and also uh deflating Mm -hmm the heroic mythology around war. It's like nothing is worth it. Like after you see the laundry list on both sides, the victor and the vanquished, like it's once you see it all spelled out in explicit detail, none of it is worth it. It's like what happens to a body. The only conclusion, at least that my brain can come up with is like, it's not worth it. War is not worth it. (laughs) Right. Absolutely. And I think that's, um, that's definitely Barker's perspective as well. For sure. All right, it's time for the Reader's Advisory Corner, where we talk about what we think you would enjoy if you read The Silence of the Girls and you liked it, or you're looking for something different. So, Joseph, what do you have for us? So, I have two things. Uh, The first one is a novel uh, by Mary Renno. It's called The King Must Die, and it is a sort of a coming-of-age story and historical novel from the perspective of Theseus, uh, the hero, a hero of Greek mythology, and also similar dunce to many of the the gentlemen that we've been talking about today, um, and it follows him um, through a number of settings, finally leaving him in um, Naxos, I think, by the end. And the reason why I wanted to recommend this is because I think that what Mary Renault does really well in the novel is she captures something about the archaic world and the, in some ways, the, uh, the more enchanted worldview that perceives the, the interactions of the gods um, and the demigods in daily life in a particular way. Uh, that I I didn't feel was quite so present in what I found to be a very modern sounding and feeling culture in um, in the silence of the girls, and so I think if you're looking for something that tilts more more towards a historical novel, Reno's book is a really great one to to pick up. And then the second thing that I want to recommend is a little bit lighter and uh, a lot more fun, although it does involve a fair amount of grind, uh, and that is the video game from uh, Supergiant Hades that came out a few years ago. Um, I may have talked about this game before. I've talked about plenty, talked about it plenty with people in person. Um, it is a delightful game to play where you are Zagreus, uh, the son of Hades, and you are trying to get out of the underworld. And so you die multiple times. You engage with uh, 
the Greek pantheon, and there's even a side quest uh, where you can reunite Achilles and Patroclus Aww. in the underworld. Um, How and, romantic. Uh, and, and bring them together again. So uh, so there's all sorts of fun interconnections with, with the stories mm-hmm. of the Trojan War um, in, in, that, in that great game. So, Rio, what do you have? Um, I also have two things. One of the things that I loved probably most about The Silence of the Girls was how strong of a narrative voice Briseis had. I just came away with it being like, I don't always love this character, but she knows what she's saying, and I am here for that. Um, so I was thinking of other books with very strong narrative voices, and I thought of two retellings. One of them is a novella um, by Madeline Miller, and it's Galatea. So it tells the story of Galatea, um, which is a very short um myth that is referenced i'm not sure who originally it's credited to um but it tells her story galatea is basically a person who is created and crafted to be the perfect woman chiseled out of stone um and so it's her story of um her personhood and all the things that happen with that i've read it several times um it's obviously a novella so but it's a very very short novella it's probably like 50 pages um, and it's beautiful and sad, but very gripping in her narration. Um, and then I also would recommend another retelling with a very strong narrative voice, and that is um, The Book of Longings by Sue Monk Kidd, um, which is a story the, about Anna, who um, is Jesus's wife in this narrative story. Um, so it kind of tips a little closer to monotheistic gods so it's an interesting kind of thing might not be for every reader Um, we talked earlier about how um, ancient mythology is a little bit more fair play with um, different characters that people feel less emotionally and spiritually connected to so this might not be for every reader but I walked away reading um, the book of longings feeling one very seen as a person but also just very much connected to Anna's character so would highly recommend both of those and Jess, what do you have for us? Um, I also have two things because that's usually what we do with the two, yeah. corner. Two, two. Wow. Yay. Um, the first is a mythological retelling. This one is called The House of Names by, I am going to butcher his last name, Colin Tobian, I mm-hmm. believe. Tobian. Um, cool. So I didn't butcher his last name. Good for me. Um, but it's a retelling of the Oristia, which is Agamemnon. But more importantly, his wife, Clytemnestra, right. who has always been seen in mythology as a real grouch pouch, basically. <laughs> um, there are other words that have been used for her that I won't use here. But uh, House of Names really gives Clytemnestra a lot of depth and a lot more credit than I think she has received in the past for her capability to run a household and be a queen equal in strength to Agamemnon um not someone that he can really push around which is obviously if you read the silence of the girls you'll know he really likes to push people around Mm -hmm. um literally and figuratively but she is someone who really stands to him and says I'm not going to take this from you um and their relationship their children and um the decisions that Agamemnon makes and how they impact her which is a very interesting read. And then the second book that I wanted to recommend is also a story of 
what women do during war, which is Manhattan Beach by Jennifer Egan, um, which is about a woman who works at Brooklyn's Navy Yard during World War II, and she actually is a diver, and she works on the undersides of naval ships, which is absolutely fascinating. And not as, uh, as I was saying earlier in the podcast, stories about World War II that we don't really hear. Mm-hmm. Um, women, we hear like, oh, they were back home riveting things <laughs> Rosie the Riveter <laughs> yeah and you know keeping our home front safe and rubber and all that like whatever but not really getting into the nitty-gritty of the everyday work that they did and the way that they were supporting the people who were actually fighting the war and what they sacrificed in the process so I really enjoyed that I think um it's a very interesting book because it combines a little bit of mystery too which is fun um and certainly not as violent as the silence of the girls, but it's also that kind of peek behind the curtain that we got from this book. Thanks for listening to this episode of the book lovers podcast. All our titles are available in the Spartanburg County public libraries collections via SpartanburgLibraries.org. For more information about the titles discussed on this episode, or to learn more about us, check out our website, bookloverspodcast.squarespace.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to Book Lovers on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts.